Well, good morning. I hope we all have hope this morning. Um, our first week in Advent is the weekend that we look at the Hope Candle. Thank you to the Tram family and your beautiful words and encouragement to us as you lit the Hope Candle. You should have received, um, as you came in, or had the opportunity to receive um, an Advent devotional. Um, this is a gift uh, from the church to you uh, to aid you in your devotional life this Advent season. I think it's very w well worth our time as Christians that we focus on these aspects of the Lord Jesus and his first arrival and his incarnation as they point to his life and to his ministry ultimately to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and uh, his life with us in our hearts as we live by faith. And so this sense of Advent, of his coming, is what we just sang about, the long-expected king. And so uh, may this Advent devotional help you and guide you in that. Also, you should have received uh, your uh, booklet, and in the booklet uh, explains uh, a little bit about Advent, and you'll see in there that Advent just means coming or arrival. And uh, there's three aspects to arrival in the Bible. Uh, it's one, of course, the arrival of Jesus at his incarnation. Um, it's also the arrival of Christ in our hearts by faith. Uh, there is an expectation there as, as someone comes to faith of, of, of receiving Christ into their hearts. And there's also the final advent, the final return of Christ that we all look forward to, uh, him being the consummation of all history. So we see this theme of, of Christ's arrival in different ways played out, and so it's good for us as a church to celebrate Advent. And the themes that we look at are hope this week, next week it will be love and joy and peace. And then at the Christmas Eve service, we'll will light the Christ uh, ch uh, candle, uh, which is the white one there. And so the whole time of our worship centers around what Christ brings us. He brings us hope. He brings us love. He brings us joy. He brings us peace. And these are great things for us in our Christian faith to dwell upon. And this week, we're going to look at hope. And hope, it goes back to the Old Testament. And um, our hope is seen in a... Uh, prophecy. And it was a prophecy uh, that uh, was, was with a really bad king, King Ahaz. Um, I think he's as bad as they got. Um, I, I'm sure we could do like a little raffle or a contest, who was the worst king in the Old Testament. Uh, but Ahaz is pretty bad here. And I think you'll see um, the subtlety of why he was so bad. And hopefully that will instruct us in, in matters of faith. Uh, so, uh, this, this time here is around, oh, 724 uh, B.C. It's in uh, Jerusalem. The prophet is Isaiah. We're going to take a look at two of the texts uh, regarding the prophecy of the coming Messiah, Emmanuel. And we're going to see how God wanted the king to respond in faith but the king refuses to respond in faith. But yet the sign and the promise that God had for the people then was this greater sign that was beyond what the people back in 700 BC could even imagine. So would you pray with me as we take a look at God's word? Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would 
calm our hearts today. Um, I pray also just for hope. And I think there's many of us who, we just need more hope in our life. And help us to trace back our source to true hope is in you, Father. It's in your plan for us and your decreed will and for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all hope comes from and emanates from the Lord Jesus. And so where we're struggling, where we're sad, where we're depressed, where we're confused about our future, may we find our future in your hope, the hope of the gospel, Jesus. And we pray that this would be illuminated to our hearts and minds today, and it would transform us, that we would be different people because we took a look at your word today and received it. Help us to receive your word by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at the text. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 through 14. And this is the prophet Isaiah. He's already spoken um, to uh, King Ahaz. He went out to meet him. The Lord told him, go and meet with Ahaz and give him this word. And it starts off saying, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So what took place in verses 1 through 9 was Ahaz telling, or being told by Isaiah, don't worry, you're not going to be taken over by the Assyrians. Okay, so this is probably 724 B.C. And just so that you know, historically in 722, the Assyrians, led by their evil king, Tilgath Pilzar, great name there, uh, he just wiped out the ten northern tribes of Israel. And Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he, he sees this coming. And, uh, and there's a couple of kings that want him to enter into a pact against Assyria. You know, they wanted to form their own United Nations, I guess you could say, uh, United Nations of the Mediterranean. And so uh, the, the Lord is telling him, you don't need to enter into a pact I promise that the throne of David will last forever, and I will protect my people Israel. So just know that's the word that's been given to Ahaz here. And so, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Verse 11, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, which means Jesus. In the name of Jesus, God saves, God with us. And so here's this promise given to the king to make him not enter into an alliance with, 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 with neighboring countries, with Israel and Samaria. And Isaiah is trying to comfort the king, but the king won't have the counsel of God. The king is full of pride. And notice what the king does, and this is one of the things that puts him on the really naughty list, is he uses Scripture to say no to God. 
Okay, that's how, it's not that he didn't know Scripture. He grew up being prepared for the throne of David. Um, He he was trained. He knew the Word of God. He went to temple regularly. Um, He had a relationship with the prophet. And remember, at this time in Israel, there's three offices, prophet, priest, and king. They're all of equal office because they all had their function for God. Of course, the king administratively ruled over the country and kept them safe and was to oversee the military. The prophet spoke the word of God, okay, which was really of greater value, okay, because we see all throughout the Old Testament, the kings really never could defend Israel without the help of God. And so the prophet had the word of God and gave instructions so that the king knew how to rule. But what we see here is the king rejects God's word. And then you had the priest, and the priest was the mediator for the people between, between God and man at the temple and officiated the, the reconciliation and the sacrificial system. So he had his unique office. And so the offices had to work in conjunction with each other. Okay? And so here's the prophet telling the king, God wants to give you a sign. He, he, he wants you to be comforted knowing that we're not going to get wiped out by the evil Assyrians. Okay? And if you don't know the Assyrians, just think the Nazis and then dial it up about tenfold. Okay? These were the people that came up with the torture of skinning people alive. Okay, that was, that was sport for them, okay? You didn't want to go to war with them, so Ahaz has a, 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 a reasonable fear of the Assyrians. But he, gives, he wants to give them a sign. Now, here's the thing that we need to think about with signs, is we see signs all throughout the Scriptures. And matter of fact, we are even given signs as New Testament believers. Both are holy ordinances, baptism, and communion are signs to us. So what is a sign? A sign points to a greater reality, okay? So when you are driving down the highway and it says, stop, okay, that's, the sign doesn't make you stop. It's pointing to a reality that if you don't stop, it's called a car accident and a wreck and damage and a police officer can write you, you know, a a penalty for that, right? He can write you up on a violation, and you'll have to pay, and you'll have to go through the courts and so forth. So the stop sign has no power of its own. It just points to a greater reality. Safety required. Stop your vehicle. Same thing in the scriptures. What does communion point to? It's a sign. It points to the body and blood of Christ, that your sins have been forgiven, that Christ actually did die for you. And that's why communion is a sign. It's also a seal to us. It makes us realize and apply this greater reality of the forgiveness of our sins through Christ. So it's a sign to us. Now, we shouldn't ask for signs. And here's why. We shouldn't need them because God's word should suffice. God's word should suffice. Now, when I was 17 and I was just a new believer in Christ um, and, and full of, you know, hormones and fears and P 
peer acceptance, I would pray at the end of my bed. This was after I came to Christ. Lord Jesus, if you're real, just appear at the end of my bed here tonight. And then I'll, I'll know, you know, all this Christianity and all the Bible that I'm re reading, that it's all really real, <laughs> right? I'd already given my heart to Christ, right? But I needed something more. I needed a sign. So you see how frail we are, okay? And let me just tell you, after 40 years of walking with Christ, you know what he did give me? He gave me his word and he gave me his Holy Spirit. And that was more than enough. I didn't need some sort of vision. And that's why Jesus didn't appear. He's like, no, I've given you my word. I've gone to the cross for you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. Just continue one day after another and your faith will grow. So, but here in the Old Testament, you know, this is, this is a big deal. The whole nation of Israel depends on it. And so Ahaz, being the bad king that he is, he, said, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, do not put the Lord your God to the test, which is exactly what Jesus quoted when he was with Satan and being tri under trial by the, by the devil. And so he thinks he's smart because the Lord here wants him to have the right answer. He wants to help Ahaz out. What you should notice is the incredible grace and generosity of, of God with sinners. When people make bad decisions and have to pay the price for it, it's not because God has abandoned in them. From this text, revealed himself and given the right? He's doing everything possible to a prideful, hardened king he's being gracious, he's being generous he even comes back a second time, we have a God of second chances people, we see it right here in this text and so he gives this promise that a virgin's going to give birth to a son, and he will be God with us. So the promise now isn't just for the present day situation with the Assyrians. So he rejects the council. King Ahaz ended up seeing the invasion take place. He rejects the counsel of God. He forms an alliance with, um, with, with Pekah and Rezin, the two kings, and what happens is it only angers Tilgath-Pilzer. He's like, what? You're joining up with these frauds who I plan on attacking? Well, guess what that makes you? My enemy. See, before he went into the alliance, Assyria didn't see Judah as an enemy. Now they did. So the Lord was trying to say, no, 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 you don't want to go to this alliance. No, 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 no. You don't want to do this. Okay? But he was so fearful. And you will see this all throughout Scripture, this contradiction of faith and fear. And look at your own life. Whatever decisions you're trying to make in life, are you making it out of fear or are you making it out of faith? Don't let fear 
drive your decision-making. Let faith in God and his provision drive your decision-making. And this really ties back into hope. You see, when you're full of fear, if you're hoping in God that God's going to provide, that he sovereignly administers all things in this world, you can then trust in God rather than succumb to your fears. So the next thing that we see here going on, skip over chapter 8, and we get to chapter 9. There will be no more gloom. I always like to say and doom because they rhyme. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Okay, what's so great about this text is what happened is in 722, two years after the first prophecy, the Assyrians come in and they just, they just clean up Samaria and, and, and the 10 tribes of Israel, just wipe them off the face of the earth. And you know who got hit the hardest? Galilee. Galilee was the point of attack for the Assyrians. And so this text appears in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus starts his ministry. After Jesus had been tempted by the devil and John was put into prison, this is what said, Jesus goes to Galilee to begin his ministry. He goes to the place where the greatest hurt was and brings his gospel. How does that apply to our lives? The places of our greatest hurt is where Jesus wants to apply his love, his grace, and his mercy. But will you allow him into those places? Because this is the heart of God, not to condemn, but to go in and to heal and to love. And so he begins his ministry here. So that's how the, path, the message of hope connects not just to the incarnation and the arrival of Christ, but the ministry and the person of Jesus. For God would be with his people. He came there and he walked among us. It's one of the most beautiful things about the gospel and the life of Jesus is love truly walked among us. And this is the promise of it. So what is hope? Let's just define terms here. It's an emotional and eager anticipation that something good is about to happen as a result of a coming event, thing, or person, right? And, and notice how the promise is a child. There is no greater joy I've seen people experience than the birth of a child, okay? You know, I was adopted. My mom was 44 when she received me. And when she got noticed that she was going to be able to pick me up in two days at the hospital, she ran out of the house in her, in her night clothes. Back, back in the 60s, women wore house coats, and they had their hairs in rollers before they went to bed. She ran up and down, knocked on all the neighbors' doors. See, the arrival of a son, the arrival of a child, is the most exciting thing that people will experience in their life. And so 
Isn't it interesting that that's the promise that God gives us, the birth of a son? So it's a certain commodity. And you see, in, in human affairs, hope is very uncertain, right? But it is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Why does hope matter? You can't go through life thinking that you don't need hope. You desperately need hope because hope is that aspect of, of living in life that it produces goodness and well-being in us, right? When people are hopeful about their work, their job, their church, their family, their dating relationships, it, it produces goodness. It produces love and joy and peace, which is the next few weeks. But you'll see also that depression is a key component of the absence of hope. Humans need aspiration to live. And let me just give you one illustration on this, and I think it's really one of the most revealing things of what took place uh, during World War II in Nazi Germany. But the Germans, the Nazis, were always doing psychological torture on the Jewish people in the concentration camps. And what has been said was the worst of all of them is one morning the Jewish people would wake up and they would be told to move a pile of dirt from this side of the camp to this side, and they would do it. The next morning they were told to move this pile of dirt from this side of the camp back to this side of the camp. And after a couple of weeks of that, the Jewish people said they had despaired of life itself. It was absolutely the worst because they had no hope. There was no purpose. Just moving a pile of sand one to another, one place and right back, there was no purpose of it. it. It destroyed them psychologically. People must have hope. And the gospel is the greatest source of hope. Now, here's what we're going to find. I, I, I want you to see how it differs than human hope. You see, we can say something like, I hope daddy gets home early. Well, that's just a desire for something good in the future. There's no guarantee of it, right? Like with Scripture, hope in Scripture is a guaranteed thing. Okay? Second, our hope is that Jim will arrive early. Well, that's, that's, that's a thing in the future that we desire, right? We want him to be safe, so we desire safety. But can we do anything to ensure his safety? No, it's still uncertain. See, all the hope in this human life that you've, you've experienced is just uncertainty. And so people stop hoping in life. That's why we have to hope in Christ. And the last one, oh, a good tailwind is our only hope of arriving on time. See, that's the basis that reason or thinking um, will indeed be fulfilled, right? So we can hope that we'll arrive early if, if we get something that truly will help us to get there quicker. See, this is, this is the hope that we typically deal with. Let's look at our last text here today and continue this theme of hope. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
Hallelujah. Let's start Handel's Messiah. Can we? Right? Y'all can hear that chorus in the back of your heads. It's just glorious. I suggest when you leave here today, go play it in your cars as you go home. Um, this is who we're talking about. We can hope in this wonderful counselor, this mighty God. Now, here's what's really interesting. This promise is connected to the virgin. And I want to go back to this whole virgin thing. Um, it's an original concept. <laughs> no other religion came up with the idea that the Son of God would be born of a virgin, right? And there's been some debate over the language, but it's very clear as you look at the Hebrew language here for, for Alma, it means a young girl who's never been married and never been with a man, okay? And so it is the most unusual prophecy, sign, promise you could possibly give. And for it to come true, it would have to be from God, right? Without question. Now, here's what I want you to think about. One aspect of why this prophecy really matters, okay? So, if you're trying to convince the world that Jesus is the Christ and the Bible is true, your scientific materialistic evolutionist is going to scoff that God could actually create the world in six days, right? Because all evolutionists and, 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 and scientists know, you know, in 1927, they said that the universe was a billion years old. Then just 60 years later, in 1987, they said it was 20 billion years old. And now more recently, they're going back and forth of whether it's 13 billion or 14 billion because planets seem to be, or no, stars seem to be 14 billion years old, but the rate at which the galaxy is expanding is at 13 billion, so they can't figure that out. So it's really hard for the evolutionists to accept that the world was created in six days, but they don't know how many billions of years it did start from their perspective. Okay? There's no hope in that, folks. To the scientist, there was a flood 10,000 years ago. Nope, this stuff happened, you know, Grand Canyon, it took millions and millions of years. To the skeptic, God took on human flesh, rose from the dead. You see, the Bible is full of things that the materialistic, scientific mind just rejects. And then we come along and we say a virgin's gonna give birth to God, okay? It's foolishness, they laugh at it. But here's the scary thing, folks, if you like science and facts. Jesus fulfills 331 Old Testament prophecies. The probability of that is 10 to the 57th power. You know what that means? It's absolutely impossible. No human being could possibly fulfill all those prophecies. And you put your hope in Christ who can do this. And to those who are skeptical about Christ, you need to think about this. Are you really a person of evidence? If you're truly a person of evidence, you really need to be a person of faith. So let's look at these titles of Christ. It means he's going to be a wonder of a counselor, that he will not take the advice of men and women. He will not need human advice. And think about you know, how he went about his ministry, right? His ministry was radically different in that 
you know, he, he taught really the world from an upside down perspective. He said things like, love your enemies. He said, forgive others when they hurt you and insult you. He said things like, it's, it's better to give than to receive. Right? So his counsel exceeds any kind of human reasoning. And he truly is a wonder of a counselor. He is the mighty God. He overcame our biggest enemies, sin and death on the cross. When it says that he's the everlasting father, it means that he's a shepherd. It means that he's going to have a paternal caring for the nations. It doesn't mean that the son is the father. They're two clearly distinct people of the Godhead, but it means that he, he cares for the nations. He cares for all humanity. And we see that the gospel has gone all over the world. The gospel has been received by every country, every race. The gospel is everywhere in this world. His concern is not just for a strip of land along the Mediterranean for one specific group, the Jewish people. He has a fatherly care for all of humanity who's been made in his image. And he is the Prince of Peace in that he was able to bring peace to us he is alone the one who can bring peace between man and God. So he is the Prince of Peace. I like what Calvin had to say. He says, when it appears that everything is in a ruinous condition, let us recall that Christ is wonderful. Right? So whatever's going on in your life, stop right now. Would you just call Jesus in your own heart wonderful? Jesus, you are wonderful. And what you've just done is you have just worshipped the king of the universe. Because he has an inconceivable methods of assisting us. When we need counsel, remember, he's your counselor. Right? When you don't know what to do, ask Jesus. When we need strength, he is mighty. When terrors spring up, we rely on his fatherly protection. He is the prince of peace who quickly allays our fears and our uneasy feelings. Isn't that wonderful to know that this Son of God can be all these things to us? So persevere. The writer of Hebrews tells us to push on. God's not unjust. He will not forget you. The love that you have shown him, you have helped his people, continue to help them. He's saying here, don't tire of doing good. Don't tire of serving Christ. Don't tire of being faithful and doing what God calls you to do because life does get tiring. It really does. We want you to show this same diligence to the very end so that, you, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Sometimes our hope requires us to persevere and continue in our labors for it to be realized, that God is partnering with us Right? We just don't go, okay, Lord, I hope you do this for me, and I'm just going to sit back and twiddle my fingers. So would you pray these things that the Lord would grow your hope? Know that hope is real. It's based on the truth of Scripture and the person and work of Jesus. It's a hope that will follow his plan for our lives, and it's a hope for others to believe. Let us hope and pray that this message of the gospel, that this good news of Christ's first arrival will mean that we can tell others about his first arrival so that Christ can arrive in their hearts.
And here's the last thing as the band comes up and we continue with our worship. Know this, that Christ right now reigns over the whole earth. And you know why? He can do something that governments can't. He rules and reigns in our hearts. When you receive Christ by faith, he comes and he dwells in you. And he gives you not just his hope, but he gives you his love, his joy, and his peace. Only God can rule a human heart. I love what Peterson says. He says, Eugene Peterson, he says, hope is a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said. It is believing in his sovereign grace and his ability to work things out. So let us trust God. Let us trust Christ and have hope for our lives. May you be blessed and let us stand and worship.